You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 18. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation issues from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Today's episode of the show is special for a couple of reasons. First, we are premiering a brand new Eyes on Conservation film today, and we have an interview with the biologist and filmmaker here on the podcast. So Rachel Granberg recently completed her master's thesis at Texas Tech University studying a fascinating animal, the Texas horned lizard. She'll be sharing with us some neat facts about the species, as well as some stories about her time spent out in the field, both conducting her research and shooting for this new film. But first, we're going to jump into this week's segment of The Birds and the Beats with Ben Muren. Ben will be talking with us today about a vote being conducted in Great Britain to determine the country's national bird. Thanks, Matt. As a brief interlude before our news today on the Texas horned lizard, I wanted to share a fascinating ethno-ornithology story out of Europe. That's right. I said ethno-ornithology. This is a fascinating field I never knew existed until last week. It involves the study of birds as fixtures in human culture. I came across the term while researching the candidates for Great Britain's first-ever national bird election happening this spring. Yeah, Great Britain doesn't have a national bird. Can you believe it? Ornithologist David Lindo, a.k.a. the Urban Birder, is trying to change that fact with the Vote National Bird Campaign. It's a program he spearheaded last August to educate people and galvanize them to think more about Britain's wildlife. This month, he has narrowed a list of candidates to 10 finalist species that the public can vote for online until May 7th. This list is fascinating and includes both familiar birds like European robin and common blackbird, as well as generally unknown species like the hen harrier. The top 10 birds reflected the choices of a select group of birders and conservationists who chose each species for its embodiment of Britishness. I invite all of you to consider what bird might best embody the British nation while listening to this song, made entirely from the calls of the top 10 birds. Then check out the list of finalists in our episode notes or on votenationalbird.com.
So Matt, you've seen the list. What's your favorite? Jeez, that is tough. I, I feel like I really don't know enough about most of these European bird species to be a well-informed voter on this issue. Yeah, I know. As Americans, it's not really our place to decide the British national bird, right? But I think a national bird has international significance. For example, the bald eagle is recognized throughout the world as a largely American symbol. So if you had to pick one, what would resonate with you as someone from across the pond? Well, if you're going to make me pick my favorite, I think I would have to say the Atlantic puffin. Of course, this choice is definitely colored by my experience viewing these birds here in North America along the main coast. That said, if, if I lived in the UK, I would probably want my national bird to be a species endemic to the island. I, I don't know enough about these birds to know if, if any of them are endemic to the UK, but I, I think I would want it to be a bird that felt special, a bird that maybe you would have to uh, come visit the UK to see. I definitely understand that point of view. You know, a lot of British birders actually debate whether any of the birds in the UK are endemic anymore. Lots of people think the birds that they see every day are local, but they often leave the country and are replaced by individuals from mainland Europe. This happens even with icons like the robin, which migrates south to Spain and Portugal for half of the year. But ethno-ornithologist Andrew Gosler told me in an email that he still votes for the robin every time. It's given its name to many other birds overseas, like our American robin, and there are apparently many species in England whose colloquial names have the word robin in them, even raptors like the hobby. When asked which bird he thought should be the national bird of Britain, Gosler argued that, and I quote, to vote for any other species really indicates a disconnection from our ethno-ornithological roots and probably indicates a misunderstanding of what a national bird is all about. Come May 7th, we'll see if the robin can be beat. Well, thanks, Ben, for sharing this fascinating story with us. Thank you, Matt. And now we're going to switch gears from the birds of Great Britain to the horned lizards of Texas. I am here with Rachel Granberg, who is a prescribed fire technician with the Nature Conservancy, and... I think it's safe to say uh, an expert on the Texas horned lizard. How are you doing, Rachel? I'm well. How about you? Good. Thanks for coming on to the podcast. My my first question for you is how you became interested in the Texas horned lizard initially. Well, I've always been interested in fire, and I applied to a fire ecology lab at Texas Tech University, and the opportunity came up to study how prescribed fire affects the Texas horn lizard, which is a uh, listed as a threatened species in the state of Texas. And I just jumped on board. It sounded like a great opportunity. Awesome. So uh, explain the focus of your master's research project. What were your initial goals with the project? Well, the initial goals uh, was a little bit fuzzy just because I was given some free reign with how I wanted to do my project. But basically, I wanted to look at the effect of prescribed fire on the Texas horn lizard, um, if, the per, if prescribed fire can be used to restore the southern mixed grass prairie, which is um, the habitat in the area that I was working in in central Texas. Um, I really wanted to see if prescribed fire benefited or harmed or had neutral effects on the Texas horn lizard. It, it sounds like your project is about more than just the Texas horn lizard. So uh, do other species benefit through taking steps to protect the Texas horn lizard? Oh, definitely. Um, because a, because the Texas horn lizard is state listed as a threatened species, there are more funding opportunities to do this type of research involving uh, habitat management for the Texas horn lizard. But the thing is, this is more of an umbrella species. It's a charismatic species that people care about. So 
by using the, these funding opportunities to study the Texas horned lizard and habitat restoration for this species, we're actually also benefiting white-tailed deer, turkey, bobwhite quail, and you know, basically a host of other species that also benefit from the restoration of the southern mixed grass prairie. And so what does that restoration look like? In central Texas, where I was working, there's a, a problem with what is commonly called brush encroachment or shrub encroachment, where woody plants that are normally or historically were um, set back or reduced through bison herbivory via bison or anthropogenic fire caused by Native Americans, intentionally set by Native Americans, or naturally caused fire caused by lightning strikes. Basically, these forms of disturbance constantly set back uh, woody woody plant species such as juniper, a little bit of oak, um, you know, tree species like that. So basically, we have this problem with um, the removal of these disturbance regimes from the landscape after European settlement. So bison have been exterminated, uh, domestic cattle are brought in, there's a different grazing regime with domestic livestock, and then there's also fire exclusion. So the problem is these woody plant species are allowed to to proliferate and they become really dense and it completely alters the landscape and the habitat available for not just the Texas horn lizard, but all of all wildlife and plant species and, and what have you located in central Texas. So my project looked at a little bit of mechanical thinning, but mainly prescribed fire and what happens, how does the landscape change as you reintroduce these forms of what were naturally occurring disturbances. So we're using modern surrogates that can that can be used practically and cost efficiently. So we're looking at um, modern surrogates for these natural and historical disturbance regimes and, and how they compare and can they be effectively used to reduce shrub encroachment and restore this, this grass-dominated landscape. What makes this species special? I mean, you know, are, are, are there any sort of interesting facts that you can point out, stuff that you learned uh, through your research working with this lizard? Man, there's a lot of cool stuff about horn lizards. So there's 14 species of horn lizards throughout the American Southwest and also Mexico. And within Texas, there's there's three species of horn lizards that occur. So we have the Texas horn lizard, which was my study organism. Then there's the roundtail horn lizard and the mountain shorthorn lizard. And the Texas horn lizard is the only one that's state listed as threatened in the 50s and earlier. It was very popular to collect the Texas horn lizard as um, as part of the pet collection trade. So there would be advertisements in the back of comic books, and boy, like literally, groups of Boy Scouts would go back, go out, and these ads um, promised a five dollar bounty or you know some sort of fee like that for every horn lizard that they found. So groups of boys would be going out into the wilderness in Texas and just collecting, you know horn lizards by the bucket and sending them mailing them off to get their bounty for the <laughs> for the horn lizards they picked up so finally in the 70s scientists became alarmed and concerned with the drastic decline that they noticed just anecdotally it wasn't even demonstrated scientifically um, and in 1977 
they petitioned for the state of Texas to list the Texas horn lizard as a threatened species, even though throughout the rest of the the, the geographic range of the horn lizard, um, the the population seemed to be seemed to be doing fine. It was just in Texas they had specific concerns about the drastic decline of the species. Um, also in 1993, it became the, the state reptile, which kind of further demonstrates the culture importance of this lizard to Texans. Um, and there's, there's a lot of, I mean, besides it being just a really cool reptile, there's a lot of cultural significance. I think one of my favorite stories um, I've, I read was there's this lizard called old rip and he was, I think it was 1897 in Eastland, Texas, a justice of the peace placed a live Texas horn lizard in the cornerstone of the county courthouse. It was kind of like a living time capsule. And 30 years later, they, they reopened this cornerstone and supposedly uh, a dusty but still alive lizard just kind of popped out. <laughs> um, and, you know, they had thousands of people come to see this this cornerstone be opened up, which, of course, I mean, there's no way it was the same lizard. It was probably, I mean, it was planted. But <laughs> Old Rip is like, that's a legend that they still teach elementary age students in Texas. And actually, I don't know, um, there's a cartoon, Michigan J. Frog, like, like a Warner Brothers cartoon, and it's the frog in the top hat that dances and sings, and he was actually, Michigan J. Frog was a character based off of Old Rip. Um, he's a singing, dancing frog that, you know, comes out of a, a cornerstone of some courthouse, but he only sings and dances in front of this one construction worker. He never performs for every, anyone else except for this construction worker. Um, but anyway, okay, I got off on a tangent there. And I just think it's so it's so interesting how this this tiny little inconspicuous lizard just really has um, generated a lot of interest. Um, I guess I should probably talk mention a little bit like ecology of the species. They're myrmecophagus, so they they eat ants. I mean, they can eat any sort of insect species, but they really specialize on harvester ants, which constitute like 70 to 90% of their diet. And these ants are a central foraging species. So they have, uh, you know, a big bare spotted soil. And in the center of this bare spotted soil is the colony entrance. And this is where all the worker ants, the foragers pour out of this central colony and go find grass and forb seeds and then bring the grass and forb seeds back to the colony. And horn lizards just kind of, they either hang out on the foraging trail or occasionally they'll hang out near the colony entrance and they're a sit and wait predator. So they'll just kind of snipe ants as the ants move by and they, they sit really stationary and still because as soon as, as soon as the ants perceive that there is a predator there, they, they go into attack mode. Um, <laughs> and I've actually seen horn lizards get bit by this ant, these ants. They actually have, they have an antivenin in their blood that helps them deal with the, the toxins that are present in the sting of the ant, in the bite of the ant. Um, but you can tell it's still painful for them <laughs> when they do get detected and, and attacked by ants. Um. <laughs> yeah, this this connection between the, the Texas horn lizard and the harvester ant is, is really fascinating. And um, that, that's definitely one of the, the 
things that that I learned uh, uh, through watching, you know, early cuts of the the video that that you put together, um, is yeah, just this fascinating connection between these two species and the mm-hmm. fact that the Texas horn lizard lizard relies on this one species for such a huge uh, percentage of their diet is is really interesting. I, I mean, I I, I guess. I guess I wonder. I mean, is, is is that unusual to have a species that's that's so reliant on one specific prey source? I mean, what about some of the other species of horn lizards? Well, it's definitely a common trait throughout the genus. There are quite a few different species of harvester ants throughout the Southwest, and they they're all granivorous species. They do depend on grains. Some species more so than others. But that's something that's really interesting about the horn lizard. I mean all of the varieties of species of horn lizard depend on harvester ants. Um, it's really interesting and it's actually been, it's been studied that, um, in California, they have a problem with an Argentine ant. It's an, an invasive ant. So horn lizards in a lab setting that were fed these Ar- Argentine ants versus being fed a native harvester ant, the horn lizards that were fed the invasive ant grew less, um, they grew slower and they gained less weight. So there's definitely an importance with the harvester ant. It, there is no substitute in terms of eating other ants. Um, horn, uh, the harvester ant is really important to the horn lizards. Oh, fascinating. And uh, yeah, you, you just answered my next question, which was whether or not they'd be able to adapt to eating other types of ants or insects. Um, yeah, that's it's really, really fascinating. So I guess I'm wondering what role... Uh, uh, sort of harvester ant populations, if any, have played in uh, sort of the decline in the population of the Texas horn lizard? Well, um, harvester ants are definitely, uh, it's been anecdotally noted that they're declining, and it may be due to the spread of the red imported fire ant, which was actually introduced to the U.S., from South America via Mobile Bay in Alabama, and it's spread throughout the southeast and now spreading throughout the southwest. Um, it really hasn't been studied a lot. For some reason, people aren't too excited about studying ants, <laughs> but there's definitely anecdotal evidence that there's an issue between these two, two different species of ants, especially the red imported fire ant is extremely aggressive. Um, and I personally have witnessed red imported fire ants attacking harvester ant colonies. Um, and the harvester ants all pour back inside of their colony and kind of block the entrance as these red imported fire ants are um, trying to get to their food source or just attacking each, you know, individual harvester ants. Um, it's just a really interesting interaction that definitely um, we need more, more research to figure out what's going on here. So we have these harvester ant populations that are most likely being impacted by an introduced invasive species, another species of ant. But what role does fire play in this? How, how does the um, prescribed fire, you know, what, where, where does that come into play in these interactions between the Texas horn lizard and the harvester ant? Well, um, in terms of fire, we, we know that Fire influences the species, the habitat, species composition, and structure. So 
the great thing about fire is that it reduces the dominance of the woody plant overstory. And when, when you reduce your overstory, your grassy understory is allowed to thrive. And something else that fire does that's beneficial is, um, well, depending on the timing of the fire, if you do a summer burn, you increase your herbaceous understory species diversity. And um, that's really, my research found that that benefited um, the probability of survival, increased the probability of survival for female Texas horn lizards. We weren't really sure why, but we do think that this um, grass and forb species richness, this increase in species richness may be a proxy for harvester ant health because they are a granivorous species. They depend on, they depend on a healthy understory. Um, and we think that prescribed fire um, does a great job of that. And we know, we know it does that job effectively. Um, and it's also cost efficient in terms of, other treatments that are available and other treatments that are out there that people are using. So it sounds like there's both a direct benefit to the Texas horn lizard that these prescribed fires have, uh, but then there's also the indirect benefit, right, of, uh, uh, you know, uh, playing a role in, in, you know, maybe helping out the harvester ant, which is the primary prey species of the Texas horn lizard. Does that sound accurate? Yes, definitely. Because the fire, when you're reducing your woody plant overstory, you're increasing. Another thing I should talk about is the the importance of thermal regulation in the Texas horn lizard. Because it's an ectotherm, they need to be able to get out into the sun to bask or hide underneath a plant or bury themselves in soil during the heat of the day. So you reduce this woody understory. Um, and increase the patchiness of the habitat, you're making it easier for the horn lizard to get in and out of the sun and the shade and be able to thermoregulate. In addition to increasing your grass and forb species richness and overall understory health, which will benefit the harvester ants. So you definitely have both the direct and indirect benefits from prescribed fire. So were you comparing uh, prescribed fire against other methods of uh, clearing out this brushy uh, plant material um, as far as the effectiveness that different uh, uh, techniques had for uh, clearing these areas and restoring the habitat? You know, I I did have some areas that were mechanically thinned. I had some areas that were burned, and I, I had some areas that um, I did not intend to be a study site, but we kept finding lizards there, so... I thought, hey, this is this is where we're finding lizards. We should include these areas. And this was these were areas where there was light agriculture, just tilling wheat fields for um, to benefit wildlife species like uh, turkey and deer specifically. And these were not areas that were actually farmed. It was just in terms of wildlife management, very small wheat fields that we kept finding lizards. And what I did find in terms of um, Shrub species management, like density management of shrub density, mechanical thinning and fire were fairly similar. However, with the use of fire, you had more of a patchy mosaic of habitat, whereas with mechanical thinning, the area was completely clear cut and devoid of all shrubs, which may not be entirely beneficial to horn lizards because they do still need to be able to get out of the sun during the heat of the day to thermoregulate. What what management implications do you see 
this research as as having? Well, definitely what we found, specifically what I found in terms of benefiting reproducing female Texas horn lizards, and I focused on reproducing female Texas horn lizards because they're you only need one male to mate with many females. The females are the most important part of this piece right now. Um, and what I found was that we needed to decrease the amount of litter on the ground that may be associated with creating a hotter, drier microclimate for thermoregulating. I also found that we need to reduce shrub density. And lastly, I found that we needed to increase grass and forb species richness. So in terms of specific management techniques, we found that prescribed fire did all three of these things. We have found, though, that there are a lot of obstacles in terms of um, the legality issues of u- using fire on private land or even public land. There's There are many obstacles that stop people from, from using fire as a tool to restore habitat and one of these one of these issues is that there's it's expensive to find a burn boss that can conduct all these fires um, even though the use of fire itself may not be expensive finding the adequate personnel to do it can be expensive and the Edwards Plateau prescribed burning association is it's a burn cooperative where um, it's just concerned citizens who want to use fire to manage habitat on their land. They've grouped together. Um, they share resources, not just tools, but they'll volunteer to help each other out when they want to conduct burns on their property. So we've, we found that fire needs to be used. And we've also discovered this really cool burn cooperative in central Texas that they're really striving to, to help each other, restore the southern mixed grass prairie and not just for the benefit of the texas horn lizard but all species that that thrive in this um grassland ecosystem that's really fantastic that's that's super neat to hear so this uh this cooperative is basically a group of private landowners that 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 want to use prescribed fire on their private lands to to help Mm um uh, restore habitat yeah Mm -hmm. yep definitely so is most of this area, uh, I mean, most of this area in Central Texas that, that you're uh, conducting your research on, is it is it mostly private land? Yes, Texas is almost exclusively privately owned. There's a very small percentage of public land in Texas. So really, cooperatives like this um, are key to restoring habitat. So um, there's quite a few government agencies that will assist private landowners in restoring habitat on their land. However, because landowner demographics are changing, instead of getting in touch with one private landowner who owns a thousand acres or more, these government officials are having to get in touch with, you know, 20 to 30 landowners or more that own parcels of 100 acres or less. So these burn cooperatives are a great opportunity for government officials who want to help people reach out to people and educate them about prescribed fire instead of, you know, going door to door 
trying to talk to a lot of people who have very small partials, they can just reach out to a burn cooperative and get in touch with, you know, a hundred landowners or more who are already all interested in the use of prescribed fire. So it's a great education and outreach opportunity um, for government agencies or even just um, non-government agencies who are interested in reaching out to private landowners. They know where they need to go to get the biggest bang for their buck. So I'm curious to hear uh, a, a little bit about your, your current position uh, with the Nature Conservancy. You, you mentioned right at the outset that um, you've had this interest in, um, in, in fire, um, you, you know, even before. I mean, that's sort of where your interest mm-hmm. in the Texas horned lizard came from. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I guess I'm wondering, I mean, is, is there any, any sort of connection between, you know, the sort of the questions you were investigating in your master's research and um, the, the, the work that you're doing now with the Nature Conservancy? Well, right now I am a prescribed fire technician with the Nature Conservancy in Alabama. And what we're focusing on here is the restoration of longleaf pine habitat using fire. So a very similar situation in Alabama um, as what I was dealing with in Texas is um, historically there was fire caused by lightning strike and also Native Americans used fire intentionally to manage habitat. And post-European settlement fire people, Europeans just weren't used to the role that fire fire played in the system. So fire has been excluded and forests have become, the, the term is called mesification of the forest. The forests have become crowded with these hardwood moisture hardwood species they're moisture loving species um it's really altered the the dynamics of the system here so you have species such as the gopher tortoise and the red cockaded woodpecker that depend on a more of an open longleaf pine habitat that is burned frequently and with the exclusion of fire this habitat has gone away and these species of interest have definitely suffered as an as a result so TNC Alabama has really focused on using prescribed fires to restore this habitat, not only on the private land that the Nature Conservancy owns in Alabama, but we also work on um, private o- privately owned land, just cit- concerned citizens that want to restore habitat, also forest service land, and even a little bit with U.S. Fish and Wildlife. So I want to hear a little bit about... Uh, your um, the, the the work that you did on this film project about the Texas horn lizard and, and about your uh, uh, master's research with this species. Um, uh, I, I guess to start things off, I mean, I, I'm just curious, you know, w- what sort of uh, in- inspired you to, to reach out to us, um, uh, you know, or, or sort of where your interest uh, sort of initially came from in, in putting together a, a short documentary. Um, well, I guess the nature of working in this field is, I mean, every one of us who do any sort of conservation work or, or research in the field of science, you get to go places other people don't and see things that you may not otherwise, if it weren't for the fact that you have to be hiking out in the middle of nowhere in these, in these woods where there's no trail, you just... You see things that other people don't. So I've always been interested in photography. And then I ended up uh, 
meeting Sean Bogle, who is, I mean, he does a great job with you guys. Good friends with him. Good friends with another volunteer, Sarah Chin. And just kind of, I heard a lot about their work with Wildlands. And they came to visit me in Texas. And Sean was just like, hey, you should do this. You really should volunteer with these guys. I think it it would be a good outlet for you. And he was right. It was great to have um just some sort of creative outlet to get to get my to be able to speak about my passion and what I care about and spread the word about prescribed fire the benefits of fire and the Texas horn lizard um you know because it gets boring just sitting in front of a computer typing all day long this has been a great opportunity for me so I, I guess I'm wondering, you know, if there are any sort of lessons you learned, you know, along, along the process or, you know, I mean, uh, and, and, and specifically, I mean, do you think working on a project like this, I mean, do you think it helped your science communication skills? Oh, definitely. <laughs> well, without a doubt, um, you know, in terms of science communication, it sitting and typing a paper, that's that's not that bad. That's pretty easy, you know, because you get to revise it as many times as you want before you send it out. But in terms of speaking, that's something that I've always had. Um, it's, it's a challenge and it's, it's nerve wracking sometimes to put yourself out there in spoken word. And it's definitely improved my skills and improved my ability to get specific points across. And I've also, um, I had no film experience whatsoever, so uh, it improved what little skills I had with that as well. Yeah, I, I'm curious to to hear, you know, what it was like from your perspective to see that story sort of come together. It was it was a trip. It was really cool. I mean, you know, I'm out there doing my work in the fields by myself all summer. It, I don't. I really enjoyed getting the footage, but I was concerned that, you know, well, I'm just very self-critical, but I was like, I don't know. I don't know if they're going to be able to make this that great. Like, I'm not really that good at what I'm doing. And then I sent off my hard drive to you guys and uh, the the cut that I saw coming back from you guys. I was just amazed at, at what you had done and really impressed with the quality. Um, yeah, you got, I mean, it was a great experience. Well, you captured some really amazing footage for sure. Um, it, it was really neat for me to, to to see that story come together as well, um, especially because you know the Texas horn lizard is, is a species I knew nothing about, you know, and and I, I've really never worked with with any lizard species at all. So um, yeah, it, it was it was neat for me to to I mean to both see that you know the footage you're able to capture and to see that animal uh, in its natural environment, and and also to learn about your research and. Um, uh, yeah, so it, it was interesting for mind as well. So I, I guess uh, sort of my, my, my final question would be, you know, uh, what advice would you give to, you know, maybe other folks out there in, in a similar position that, you know, uh, uh, sort of, you know, uh, are maybe looking for that creative outlet, but they're not sure if they should sort of, you know, uh, take that leap to sort of tell their story, you know, whether it's film or, or some other medium. Um, I would say just jump in head first and <laughs> um, it's definitely, I mean, it doesn't hurt to just, just do it. Um, it's, it's more rewarding than you realize. Um, definitely just getting the footage in and of itself was really interesting for me. I got to see it 
um, take note of social behavior that, that I wasn't even really studying, but because I was collecting the footage, I got to see it and, and watch it over and over again. Cause I have this footage and then just to see what you guys made after, after I sent my footage to you, it was just, it was really rewarding. Yeah. There are no regrets whatsoever. If anyone has any urge to have a creative outlet like this, they should just do it. It's worth it. So are you going to keep shooting footage? Do you have uh, you know, an, an, an idea for another, another film? Um, now I'm just kind of hooked and I shoot footage everywhere I go. <laughs> so I have, I have a little bit of a, a hoarding, hoarding problem, <laughs> probably more than more footage that I know what to do with, but it could be worse. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thanks a lot for, uh, coming on to the show here and for uh, sharing all this great information about your research and also about shooting this fantastic documentary, which we're uh, releasing at, at the same time as this podcast episode. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was great. All right, that was our interview with Rachel Granberg, a former graduate student at Texas Tech University and currently a prescribed fire technician for the Nature Conservancy in Alabama. Rachel has a great perspective on wildlife conservation. I love that it was her interest in fire that actually led her to study the Texas horn lizard. Fire plays such a crucial role in our place on this earth. It has shaped the way that we interact with our surrounding environment for thousands of years. So it makes sense that an interest in fire can lead to an interest in wildlife. It's also really great to hear about Rachel's work on this new documentary about the Texas horn lizard and how that work has impacted her perspective. I talk a lot about how important it is for scientists, especially, to find some type of creative outlet, and it sounds like Rachel has definitely found hers. She talks about how gathering footage for this video actually allowed her to observe behavior that she had never seen before. So here we see how her creative outlet has had a direct positive impact on her observation skills while out in the field. Now, for folks who are looking to learn more about the Texas horn lizard and some of the issues involving prescribed fire that we talk about in this episode, head on over to the show notes page for this episode, which you can find at wildlensinc.org slash EOC18. That's wildlensinc.org slash EOC18. We'll have links to additional resources up there, and of course you can find Rachel's film on that page as well, and it'll be up on the Wildlands homepage. This episode of the Eyes on Conservation podcast was produced by myself, your host Matt Podolsky. The Birds and the Beats is produced by Ben Mirren, and our theme music is by The Humidors. (laughs) 